If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to, uh, to John chapter 10. As we continue looking at the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. John writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he records the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Now, in these words, our Lord Jesus Christ continues speaking along similar lines to what he had said earlier in this chapter. He'd been speaking of sheep, of a shepherd, of a sheepfold, how the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice and they follow him when he calls them out. By name, Jesus had spoken of himself as the door by which one may enter in and go out and find pasture. He is the door in the sense that if anyone enters and seeks to come to God through him, that person will be saved. And Jesus continues speaking here in similar terms, using similar imagery. The shepherd, the sheep, the hired hand, the fold, the flock. And in these words of Jesus, verses 10 through 18, his words become much more specific much more pointed and much more focused than what he had said earlier on. And Jesus identifies himself here over and over again as the good shepherd. And in identifying himself as such, he tells us about himself. He tells us about the things that characterize him, the things that he does. And so let's look at what our Lord tells us about himself in being the good shepherd. And as we grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is, Let's seek to to love him, to live for him, to follow him, to worship him in light of who he is and in light of what he has done for us. The first thing that Jesus tells us about himself being the good shepherd is that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this comes up multiple times in these verses. We see it in verse 10. We see it in the second half of verse 15. We see it again down in verses 17 and 18. This 
In other words, is a really big deal. This is central to Jesus being the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus dies for the sheep. And this is, in fact, the reason for which Jesus came, as we know from Scripture more broadly. And so he said this when he was talking to Nicodemus. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He's talking about being lifted up, of course, on the cross. This is what Jesus was talking about when he told the twelve in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The angel had appeared to Joseph before Jesus was born and had said that the baby boy was to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That was the mission for which Christ was coming. And the way he would accomplish that mission was by laying down his life for the sheep. And so this was, this was no afterthought. This was the plan from the beginning. God the Father and God the Son had covenanted before the foundation of the world that the Son would come into the world and would redeem a people for his own possession, that he would come to earth to die for the sins of sinners so as to bring them to God. And so we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, of the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before times eternal, or sometimes it's translated promised long ages ago. In other words, this hope of eternal life is an ancient promise, the most ancient of promises. The promise was a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, our Lord, and this is the plan of salvation. And that plan was that God had chosen to redeem particular fallen sinners for himself in eternity past before any of us were born. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all of eternity. And just as God chose his people in Christ before the foundation of the world, so we are told concerning our Lord in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ was known before the foundation of was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. And so Christ himself was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The context of 1 Peter 1 makes this clear that this has reference to Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood. And the point here, of course, is that God the Father and God the Son agreed on this in eternity past. The particulars regarding this plan of salvation and this culminates in eternal life for all who believe. The Father gave a people to the Son, and Christ our Lord became a man and went to the cross to die for him. And so Christ's death and his resurrection and the subsequent proclamation of this truth are the manifestations and the outworkings of this promise that was given long ago. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us that when the Son of God comes into the world... He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And so Jesus comes into the world as a sacrifice to do the will of God. In this covenant or the plan of salvation, the Son of God humbled himself by becoming a man and taking the very form of a servant. And then, as such, as the mediator, the God-man, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to the Father unto the point of death, as we 
read together this morning from Philippians 2. And as he says here, he lays down his life. He does this voluntarily. Nobody takes it from him. He had agreed and covenanted with God the Father that he would do this. As he says in verse 18, no one took it from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. He had the authority to lay it down. He has the authority also to take it up again. And he says that this commandment he received from his father there in verse 18. And so when we read of this commandment from the father received by the son, we must never read of this commandment and think somehow that the son of God must be inferior to the father because he has received this commandment. But rather we must understand the commandment spoken of here as being the charge and the trust that was committed to the Son by the Father in the plan of salvation. As the Son obeys and becomes a man and submits himself to the Father in everything as the God-man, as one who is both God and man, now he submits himself to the Father. And the Father approved the Son's conduct, which is why we read Jesus saying in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. This is the Father's approval of Christ and what he has come to do. The purpose for his death was to be a sacrifice, of course, a substitute, a ransom for our sins. And then, thank God, his death was not the end of the story. There was a resurrection of which Jesus said here. He lays it down. He has the authority to take it up. Again, And the resurrection is equally essential to our salvation. If Jesus were not risen from the dead, we could never trust in him or believe that our sins were, in fact, done away with by Jesus' death on the cross. We couldn't trust in a dead Savior. How would we know that someone who died and stayed in the grave was actually someone who saved us? How could someone who died and stayed in the grave actually shepherd us, care for us, nurture us, and nourish us? The resurrection was just as essential to Jesus' shepherding as his death was. And his righteousness is applied to us by his resurrection. We read in Romans 4.25 that he was raised for our justification. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, Jesus would not have ascended to the Father. And if Jesus had not ascended and been glorified, the Holy Spirit would not have been sent and been given. And so Jesus says in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, that he die, rise again, and ascend to the Father. He says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so now that Jesus has been risen and ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit has come and has convicted the world through enabling the gospel to be preached, through empowering the message that was preached so that it may convict men and women all throughout the world and open the hearts of those who hear the gospel so that they may believe. And so friend, recognize here what a wonderful shepherd Jesus is, that it's through his death and resurrection that he gathers his sheep, that he calls them to himself. And Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, where he says that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd 
and guardian of your souls. That was our condition. We were continually straying. But God sent us a shepherd to die for us, to rise again, so that now we might be gathered into him, that we might return to him, the shepherd and guardian for our souls. Jesus came and he accomplished his task through the cross and through the empty tomb. And notice from Jesus' words here how Jesus is completely set apart from other would-be carers of the sheep. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13 that he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Now, I think we can say here that ownership brings ownership. Right? Sometimes we use the word ownership in the sense of, I own this, this is mine. Sometimes we use ownership in, in the sense of, I'm going to take ownership of this project. In other words, I'm going to care for this project, I'm going to see to it that it gets done, I'm going to make sure all the pieces get put in place so that this project, whatever it is, will be accomplished. The hired hand here has no ownership, right? Literally nor figuratively. He doesn't own the sheep. They aren't his. He doesn't take ownership of them in the figurative sense. He doesn't take ownership in the sense of of caring for them. Jesus, though, owns the sheep and subjectively takes ownership, figuratively takes ownership for them. The hired hand sees the danger and he gets out of dodge, as it were. He has, has no skin in the game, right? He sees the wolf coming He's like, these aren't my sheep. I'm out of here, right? He's, he's ready to hit the road and, and start running. He's willing to abandon them all so that he can save himself. Well, thanks be to God that this is not the outlook of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is willing to sacrifice himself to save the sheep. He sees the danger and runs into the danger so as to save the sheep. He says in John 12, 27, Anticipating the coming of the cross, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus is looking ahead and seeing the cross. And he says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He recognizes that's, that's not the right prayer request to ask. It's for this purpose that I have come. Jesus saw the danger, and yet he continued on steadfastly toward the danger. He knew that he would suffer the wrath of God for the sins of the world on the cross. He told the disciples ahead of time, again and again, that he would suffer and would be raised. And when Peter said, this shall never happen to you, Jesus replied by saying, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus saw the danger ahead of time. He announced the danger ahead of time. He marched toward the danger. So we read in Mark 10.32 that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. And what Mark is describing there is Jesus' final journey up to Jerusalem before, before the Passover. And the picture that he paints there is one in which Jesus is out in front leading the way with resolute purpose knowing 
full well what was awaiting him in Jerusalem once he arrived there. And everybody else is kind of like, whoa, this guy, this guy is resolute. And everybody else is a little bit, a little bit more fearful, a little bit more timid as to what the situation might hold. And this is the very same firmness of purpose which was prophesied of Christ by Isaiah in Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 7. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus knew the danger. He ran into the danger. He's not like the hired hand who sees the danger and runs away. And though, of course, as we know in Gethsemane, Jesus would sweat drops of blood and would beg the Father that if possible, the cup might pass from him. Yet nevertheless, even there, he was always submissive to the divine will, to the will of God the Father. He saw the danger was closer than ever, and yet still he went forward into that danger and did not back down. He went for the sake of the sheep. For the joy set before him, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. And as a result of his sufferings, Christ on his part receives a reward, right? He says that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. And so what was, what was the joy that was set before him? Well, Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. In other words, Jesus saw that he would justify the many, that he would bring many souls of men and women into the kingdom of God. He saw that he would receive an inheritance. He saw that he would be satisfied with the results of the anguish of that crucifixion. And so in, in light of that, in light of seeing that Christ would have a reward, that Christ would receive joy from his suffering, let's, let's consider here from John 10 the, the intimacy that, that Christ has with his people and also the scope of the inheritance which was to be his. And so first, the, the intimacy. We find this in, in uh, verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. As God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly knew the Father in a close and intimate way that none of us can, can fully know. Jesus had said in John 6 that not anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is putting it out there that nobody knows the Father. Nobody has seen the Father the way that he, as the Son of God, had. And that unity and that intimacy that Christ has with the Father here is likened to the intimacy that Christ has with his people. Christ knows his own, and his own know him. It's not simply that his sheep know of him or know facts about him, but they actually know him. They know him personally. And as his sheep, we know him because we have seen the truth about him in his word, and we have experienced those truths 
as they are borne out in our lives. And so what does the word reveal to us about Jesus? Well, the word reveals that Jesus is humble and gentle in heart, and that Jesus gives rest to the souls of those who come to him. And we, his sheep, know that by experience. We know that Jesus is gentle and is humble because he's willing to receive sinners like us. If Jesus were not gentle, if Jesus were not humble, there'd be no hope for any of us. We know that Jesus gives rest to our souls by experience. We know the rest that comes with the cleansing of the conscience through faith when we receive the forgiveness of sins. His sheep know the rest that comes to their souls when we lean upon our shepherd by faith. We don't know what's going to happen to us. We enter into some period of uncertainty in our lives, and we have no clue how this is going to, to work itself out, but yet we can, we can rest on Christ. Because Christ is our shepherd. Christ knows what's best for us. He is going to take care of us and lead us through it all. The word reveals to us that that Jesus loves us. And we know that love in in that Christ has received us. That Christ died for us while we were yet sinners so as to bring us into his kingdom. And being strengthened now by the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith and As Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, we are able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, inasmuch as it surpasses knowledge, we can't know the love of Christ fully because it's beyond our ability to know it. But we can begin to know. We can, in some small measure, know this love of Christ. And in knowing the love of Christ, we know Christ himself. And not only do we come to know Christ ourselves, we also are known by him. Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me. He has loved us, he has called us to himself by name. The words of David in Psalm 139 are certainly applicable here. As David says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Obviously, as he is God, Christ is omniscient, and so he knows absolutely everything, both about his own people and about everyone else as well. But the fact that he knows his own, speaks not only of his objective knowledge of us, knowing what's on our mind, knowing what's on our heart, knowing our words before we speak them, but it also speaks of the intimacy of his relationship with his people. When Jesus sends the hypocrites away to judgment, he will say to them, I never knew you. Right? Jesus obviously knows everything about them. He knows that, that they were hypocrites, that they were claiming to be his people, but they actually weren't. But he says, I never knew you. And what he means is he had no relationship with them. He doesn't know them. But he knows those who are his. They form the body of which he is the head. They are his bride and he is the husband. His people know him and he knows them. This is the the intimacy that Christ has with his people. And that his people have with him. Christ saw this 
ahead of time. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. But there was also not only a, a depth of intimacy, but there was also a grandness of scope to, uh, to what Christ was doing. So the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That was, that was the scope of what was set before Christ. The Father says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations. And Jesus says here in verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, in these words, Jesus speaks of other sheep. Sheep, he says, that are not a part of this fold. And by this, he is referring to those who were not Jewish. He's speaking at this time to, uh, to the, the Jews of Jerusalem. And he says that he has other sheep that are not part of this fold that would hear his voice, they would follow him, and in the end there would be one flock and one shepherd. And indeed, the father had said to the son in Isaiah 49.6, It is too small a thing that you, my, uh, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This was the plan all along. This was the, the plan of salvation, planned by the Holy Trinity from all eternity and announced beforehand in the prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus put it so wonderfully at the end of the Gospel of Luke. He says, thus it is written. What was written? That the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance of, uh, for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This, this was the plan, that the Son was to come, to die, to rise again, and then starting at Jerusalem, the Gospel would go out to the world. And John tells us that even the ungodly Priest Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. That's John eleven fifty one and 52. Even, even an ungodly man like Caiaphas could prophesy that, that this was the plan, that Jesus would die not only for the Jewish nation, but for the world, and gather into one all of the people of God. Of God. And indeed, this is, this is what you find in the, the book of Acts, the gospel going out, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And we find Jews and Gentiles gathering themselves together in the church, one flock, following Christ, one shepherd. And this is why Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 of the Gentiles who were formerly far off but now brought near by the blood of Christ. We find him speaking of how Christ is our peace and how both groups were made one, and the, the barrier of the dividing wall was broken down between them. And that Jesus was doing all this so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. That's Ephesians two fifteen and 16. And though for the, the bulk of the church age, the majority... Christians have been Gentiles rather than Jews. We anticipate that when the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled, there will be many Jews who hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and join us in following after him. And so we find in Romans 11, 30 and 31, For just as you once were disobedient to God... 
but have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Jesus said that there would be one flock and one shepherd. And this one flock is not merely one congregation, but encompasses all who have ever repented and believed in Jesus, whenever they have lived and wherever they have lived. This is what Christians have historically called in the language of the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church, or in the language of the Nicene Creed, one Catholic and apostolic church. And the word Catholic simply means universal, everywhere, encompassing all who are truly Christ's. It's not simply that believers are to be found in one particular local church or one particular nation or one particular region of the world. Praise God, that's not true. Christ's church, Christ's flock is Catholic. It is universal. It extends so far as the sheep of Christ may be found. Though scattered throughout the world in many smaller flocks, in the grand scheme, in the the grandest of schemes, there's only one. Only one flock. Though there are many under-shepherds, ultimately there's only one. Only one shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul was speaking of in Ephesians chapter 4 when he said that there is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And this is the flock to which you must belong in order to be saved. If you're not part of this one flock of which Jesus speaks, if you're not part of the church of which Jesus is the shepherd, the universal church, then you're not a Christian. If you're not part of that flock, it means that you haven't heard Jesus' voice. You haven't listened to him. You haven't trusted in him. You haven't repented of your sins. So this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep in accordance with the plan of salvation that's planned in eternity past by the three persons of the Holy Trinity. He's the good shepherd who takes up his life again. He's the good shepherd who runs into danger for the sake of his sheep and doesn't turn away when he sees the danger coming. He's the good shepherd who knows his sheep and who brings his sheep so that they may know him as well. And he is the shepherd who includes sheep within his flock from both Jewish and Gentile folds. His flock includes men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the world. This, this is wonderful. This is good news. This is the gospel right here. But despite all of these wonderful things that we see here, in these words of Jesus, we find John's words, verses 19 through 21, telling us that there was... Again, a division that occurred among the Jews because of these words. John brings this up again and again. Jesus says something, and John says, hey, there was a division about this. Some people were saying this, some people were saying this, and what do we have here? Some were saying that Jesus had a demon and was insane and that he should not be listened to. We've seen that charge before, that Jesus is demon-possessed. Those who said so considered that the claims that he was making for himself were just too outlandish. It can't be right. It can't be true. He's blaspheming. He's crazy. Something. Why would you listen to somebody like that? But then on the other hand, John tells us that there were a contingent of Jews who were listening carefully to what Jesus was saying and were deeply pondering the things that Jesus was doing. And to this second 
contingent. The line of reasoning that Jesus was demon-possessed and insane didn't actually compare too well with the facts as they saw them on the ground. In other words, these people were, were thinking, you know, you can, you can say that about Jesus if you want to, but if you listen to what he's actually saying, if you look at what he's actually doing, this is not the kind of stuff that demon-possessed people and insane people say and do. They didn't think that his words sounded like the words of demon-possessed people that they had heard or insane people that they had heard. They didn't think that a demon could actually open the eyes of the blind. Now, John doesn't tell us here that this second contingent believed in Jesus, that they had repented and come to saving faith in him, but he is at least clear that the, the wheels are spinning up there. They're, they're thinking about Jesus, and they're coming to understand that we cannot simply just lightly dismiss this guy as, as demon-possessed and crazy. There's a division that occurred there among the Jews. And indeed, there has been a division of opinion about Jesus down through the centuries ever since that time. It's no wonder that Jesus would say in Luke 12, Do not suppose that I came to grant peace on earth. I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. Now that the message of Jesus has spread throughout the world, it's no longer just the Jews who are divided in their opinion about Jesus. Right? This division has gone now worldwide. It has divided friends, families, nations, cultures. Some will outright and openly say, why listen to him? Some people, however, will only say that implicitly. Though they might not be so bold as to come right out and say, why listen to Jesus? They, nevertheless, by the testimony of their life, proclaim that practically that's, that's what they think. Right? When they're not following him, when they're not doing what he says, they're actually saying by their lives, why listen to him? Why listen to Jesus? Some will say, surely there are other ways to get to God. Why listen? Others will say, surely Jesus is not who he actually claimed to be. Surely he was just a great and holy man, but not actually God in the flesh, not a sacrifice for sins. Some will say, obeying Jesus is just too hard. Obeying Jesus is just too out of step with the way people think and the time and place in which I live. Surely I can just reinvent Jesus and reinvent his words and then listen to those words, the words that I have reinvented and placed in Jesus' mouth. People can come up with any implicit or any explicit excuse that they want to. Some people verbalize those words or words like them. Some may only practically live out what those words imply. Such words and attitudes, however, are the very thing that keep men and women out of the kingdom of God. They're the very thing that keep men and women out of the flock of Jesus. Jesus had said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. In other words, you have to hear the words of Jesus. You have to believe the truth of God. You have to hear Jesus' words in the sense of believing them and submitting to his word in order to pass from death to life. That's what he says, John 5, 24. Now, it might be that you're here this morning and you've not yet listened to Jesus' words. Now, surely you've heard them in as much as you've been here this morning and heard, heard Jesus' words from the Bible. But 
As of yet, maybe you haven't really listened. In other words, those words of Jesus have not truly been impressed on your heart. Now, if that's you this morning, I want you to pay careful attention to the claims of Jesus. To listen to what he has said here, to listen to what he has said other places in his word about who he is and about what he has come to do. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus actually is who he claims to be, that he actually did do the things that he said he was going to do, that he did what he said he was going to do right here, that he did lay down his life for the sheep, and indeed he did rise again three days later. And by the preaching of the gospel, Jesus is calling you today to turn away from your sins, to believe upon him, to receive eternal life in his name. If you have more questions about that, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about this. But I would suspect that many, if not most of you this morning, have have already done this. You have already heard the words of Jesus in the sense of actually having them impressed upon your heart. You've believed them. You've believed the truth of God and submitted yourself to Christ in faith and in repentance. And if that's you this morning then I want to encourage you to look back to this posture of Christ that we see here in John chapter 10, as he has presented himself to us, the good shepherd, the good shepherd who runs into the danger for you, dies for you, and rises to life again. Look back to this posture of Christ and do so with a heart full of gratitude that he would do such a thing for one like you. If you have come to Jesus in true faith, then that means that you have some level of self-awareness of your sins. None of us knows the full depths of our depravity. I think as we go further and further in the Christian life, we become more and more acquainted with how sinful we actually are. But nevertheless, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have some level of, of self-awareness, some level of understanding of your sinfulness, and it should amaze you should amaze me that Jesus actually came to lay down his life for people like us, right? He was doing this for us while we were enemies. He was doing this for men and women who had turned aside into sin and had become worthless. Uh, like the Israelites of old described in 2 Kings seventeen fifteen. we had followed vanity and become vain. That's what we were doing when we were like sheep going astray. We were following After vain and worthless things, following after vapor, chasing after it, trying to get our hands on it, couldn't get it done. And we ourselves had become like the very thing we were after. But yet, here he is, the Son of God in the flesh, going out boldly into the danger of death and doing so in a full knowledge of what would be done to him. Understanding the arrest, the trial, the mocking, the beating, the agony of the cross, And the wrath of God, which is worse than all of that combined, Jesus understood all of that. did it anyways for people like us. Let Jesus Christ be praised today for this. He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. And so let's be thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your shepherd, and he is good. This means that you ought to follow him like a sheep, right? Not like the sheep who are going astray, but like sheep who is following after a shepherd. 
Psalm 32 verse 9 warns us not to be like the horse or, or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by, by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. That's what David says in Psalm, Psalm 32 verse 9. I don't know how many of you have had experience with horses and mules, but I've had a little bit. And sometimes there's a level of stubbornness, there's a level of running away when they know you're trying to come to them. Let's not be like that, right? Don't be like the horse or the mule, which will not, will not come to their owner. With the sheep of Christ, he knows us. We know him. Let's listen to his voice. Let's follow him. He has laid down his life for our eternal well-being. And so let's offer our lives to him, to serve him in whatever circumstances and whatever way in which he may call us. Let's love him and offer our lives in holy obedience to him in view of his great mercy toward us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we are thankful for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that he is such a good shepherd who who loves us, who loved us uh, to the full, to the uttermost by laying down his life for us and taking it up again. And Lord, we pray that we would be submissive, that we would follow him as our true and chief shepherd. We know that even as believers, sometimes we are slow and sluggish to follow him. We pray that you would stir our hearts up. Let us know the love of Christ. and Let us be strengthened. Let us be zealous to follow after him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.